next speaker now is Dr. Christopher Timmerman. He is a neuroscientist based at Imperial College London in the UK at the Center for Psychedelic Research. And he's also an expert on research into DMT and similar compounds, which forms the core of his talk today. Please welcome him to the stage. Uh, hello, everyone. Is there a way for me to keep time, actually? Because I don't have a watch with me, and oh, I'm a bit blind. Anyway, if I'm going too late, please let me know. Uh, so today I'm going to speak uh, a bit about, I'm going to change gears um, more than speak about clinical applications per se. Um, I'm going to speak about the second large area of inquiry when it comes to psychedelic compounds and psychedelic research which is uh, the exploration of the human mind, uh, possibly the understanding of the human mind, the human brain, and consciousness via the use of these compounds. And I'm going to base most of that based on my work uh, with DMT, which I've done for the past seven years, uh, as well as related research. So I'm trying to figure out. I have two, two things here. All right, yeah, of course. Uh, so to begin, I'd like to, you know, I'm, guess, I'm guessing many of you are aware of, of Stan Groff's work, um, but I would like to frame this, this famous face of his, the idea that LSD is a catalyst or amplifier for mental processes. And if properly used, it could become something like a microscope or a telescope of psychiatry. So it can advance uh, the understanding of the human mind uh, and the understanding of human consciousness, this, uh, like, massive endeavor that we've undertook in science in the past years, right? Um, and I, I wanted to start with this phrase as a, as a way of framing this as the promise of psychedelic research into how we can gain some form of insights about the nature of human experience when it comes uh, to psychedelic substances. And on a few moments during the talk, I'll also touch upon how these understandings of consciousness, when they happen also at the individual level, can also have a transformative effect in the mind, right? So it relates to their clinical application to a certain extent. Um, so to start off, I'd, I'd also like to mention how, or the importance or the relevance when it comes to the use of psychedelics, and specifically something like DMT, for example, when used in ritualistic settings, and the influence it has in the possibly the development and maybe maintenance of different cosmologies. For example, animistic cosmologies stating that uh, there is a, a world of spirit embedded within nature, for example, and the idea that these substances can somehow reveal something about uh, the nature of reality. And we can think of that in the, possibly to some extent, in the indigenous contexts. Of course, we need nuanced readings around how we interpret these uh, for them. Uh, but we can also have examples in our own cultures, in Western culture. Uh, the idea of, for example, the use of psychedelics in the 1960s and 70s, and their role in the development of the countercultural movement. The idea, again, of the transformation of societal values and understandings about how the world might operate and maybe the underlying structure of reality. So this is something that appears to be happening at the individual level, right? These kind of insights. And 
we have done some research on that regard and try and understand how these psychedelic experiences can lastingly transform beliefs or worldviews concerning the nature of reality. So we found, for example, that a single administration of a psychedelic can uh, induce increases in notions such as panpsychism or shift, words, uh, shift away from a physicalist or materialistic worldview, right? the idea that the underlying structure of reality is material. At the same time, we found in that research that worldviews concerning free will and determinism, for example, were also lastingly changed after a single administration. Uh, these were ceremonies done with uh, psilocybin or ayahuasca mostly. And in these, we find that people seems to favor a more deterministic rather than a free will um, belief system afterwards. So the findings points towards the idea that psychedelics might change beliefs concerning the nature of consciousness, as Peter mentioned in his talk as well. Apparently, there is something about the psychedelic experience which makes people metaphysically curious. Um, they engage them in a metaphysical sort of way. Uh, and of course, they might change those metaphysical outlooks, uh, inducing convincing uh, worldviews in that regard. However, the question that arises is, uh, although these insights regarding the structure of consciousness or the nature of consciousness or human experience, although they feel true for individuals, can we assert that they are actually true insights? Can they be validated? Let's say, for example, from a scientific or even experiential perspective. And this is the topic of today's talk I'm going to speak to you about today. And what is, in my opinion, the basic intriguing aspect about psychedelic substances is that they induce ineffable experiences, so experiences that are very hard to put into words. Um, they are very intimate, they're very subjective experiences, but they are induced by hardcore, uh, if you will, molecular receptor-related chemical and biochemical processes that affect the human brain. And therefore, I consider uh, psychedelic research a very intriguing opportunity to understand the divide between the mental and the material, or the body, the mind and the body, the explanatory gap related to the hard problem of consciousness. How can we translate the ineffable nature of human experience into what we see, for example, happening in the brain, in the body, or in the natural world? Or, according to some parallel sort of developments around this idea of the hard problem of consciousness, how can we understand potentially the continuity between mind and life? So mental experiences and biological processes. So. In today's talk, I'm going to present evidence uh, showing that, in a way, psychedelics can tell us something regarding the nature of human experience by allowing us to understand how we construct human experiences, how we construct a sense of self. If we think about consciousness being constituted by, let's say, for example, the theater of life, what we see in the outside world, the major second component of human experience is the sense of self or identity that we carry moment to moment. And psychedelics might provide an insight into the sense of self. Also, a potential to understand possibly 
how our sense of experience, our sense of day-to-day -day moment, moment-to-moment -moment experience, rather, is actually an embedded feature, right? So the idea is that experience is embedded within our bodily systems, are also embedded within larger social aspects, and maybe even beyond social aspects, right? The idea that we have somehow an ecology of mind at work when we understand the nature of experience. And finally discuss um, in detail, to a certain extent, how we can cultivate skillfully these understandings of consciousness within psychedelic praxis. How can we understand the idea of psychedelic experiences not as a passive thing that we somehow receive, but something that we actively engage in. Right? And in this idea of a cultivation of experience or practice, um, one of the approaches that I've taken when it comes to the research that we're trying to develop, really, is how can we incorporate experience seriously in our understanding of human consciousness? From a neuroscientific uh, sort of perspective, the usual approach is to try to reduce conscious experience to a biological process, a neurological mechanism. What we are trying to do with the research is incorporating the lived experience of our participants so that we can bet, get a better grip of what is the nature of that experience. So Francisco Varela, for example, famously says, lived experience is where we start from and where all must link back like a guiding thread. It's the first filter by which we know anything about anything when it comes to our life. And instead of eliminating or reducing conscious experience to brain processes, the opposite road can be taken, that of taking experience seriously in our study of human beings. And uh, one of the intriguing things about psychedelics, along with other non-ordinary states of consciousness, such as meditation and hypnosis, is that they provide an opportunity for us to investigate the richness of human experience. They provide us, a, in a way, a form of parenthesis in which we suspend our habitual assumptions about our experience, and we can investigate a wider range of possibilities. So we can use this in neuroscientific research, for example, by looking at how different brain states are modified in these altered states, right? And what we usually do, the common approach, is that we have a state A of experience, a normal waking state of consciousness, and that is related to an experiencing object, uh, content, and also elements of how we reflect upon that experience. And then we have a modification of experience via an altered state leading to a state B. And then we look at their brains and we try to generate averages of that transformation of consciousness. By using a disciplined approach to understand consciousness and experience, the idea is that by incorporating the lived experience of those individuals, we can better characterize the different trajectories of experience, the dynamics of that experience, how it unfolds over time, and how we can characterize also the variability between individuals. As we know, especially around psychedelics, many times, although we can find commonalities around the features of those experiences, we also find a lot of diversity. So by having a disciplined approach in understanding that experience, we can better characterize also the different ways 
and navigation that that experience can take between individuals and over time. Thereby, hopefully, getting a better picture of what is the nature of that experience. So let's start with the first idea, uh, once we've set the ground with this initial sort of assumptions. Um, the possibility that somehow psychedelic drugs uh, provide us a way to understand how we build our worlds of human experience. Oops. Uh, so a case in point in that, oh, it's a shame I had a little video there with the fractals, but that's okay. Torsten showed you some fractals, so that's, you can use those ones. Um, the idea essentially with something like DMT is that you get an immersive experience. Many times individuals feel that they have gone into a different realm or dimension in which they interact, for example, with conscious entities or beings, a very baffling experience. Intriguingly also, it provides a way for us to understand how, for example, the human brain is able to generate uh, these worlds, these immersive worlds of experience. Again, that is if we take a very reductionistic approach, assuming that the brain is generating these experiences. But we can investigate both experience and brain processes uh, accompanying this sense of immersion and this building of worlds. And that is somehow what we are trying to do with our different interview methods. We used a micro-phenomenological approach in which, again, we help people um, go into a deep examination of their own experiences via a guided, disciplined interview method. And in that, we've characterized different aspects of this experience. This is work being done by uh, a brilliant intern at our lab, James Sanders. Um, and with his work, we've been, able, we've been able to characterize some of these features of this immersive state. More importantly, uh, an emerging category that we're seeing in the analysis is this idea that during these DMT experiences, the configuration of the world and the sense of self is somehow being significantly dysregulated in a DMT experience, providing immersive experiences of visiting these alternative dimensions or realities, or communicating with different entities and beings. And indeed, in our research, we give fairly high doses of DMT in an intravenous fashion, and we see these worlds of experience emerging according to what participants are telling to us. These are, for example, drawings from their own experiences. And when it comes to neurological processes or brain processes associated or linked specifically to the visual component of that experience, when we take this disciplined interview method and we try to track what's happening in the brain, we see that the visual experience is accompanied by these changes in brain wave patterns. So we see, for example, an increase in delta and theta waves, these low-frequency brain waves, and a reduction of this alpha wave pattern. Now, beyond the specific elements of what these, each of these brain wave patterns mean, what's relevant here is that this is a brain wave state which is similar to sleep and dreaming. And what is curious about sleep and dreaming is that, similar to the DMT state, we are also in a sense of being disconnected from the external environment and nonetheless having an immersive world of experience. And this conducive to the idea that, in a way, psychedelics and DMT may induce forms of a virtual reality. Again, the idea that we can develop a world of experience that feels real, convincingly real, partially detached from an everyday experience. 
And we see, for example, by using psychometric questionnaires, that imagery, both elementary and complex imagery, while that is elevated, feelings of disembodiment are also elevated during the DMT experience. We've, um, we have a, now a manuscript under review um, around an fMRI experiment in which we gave DMT to volunteers within the scanner. Um, that allows us to characterize better with a spatial resolution what is happening in the brain. And in that experiment, we also use EEG. So we use EEG brainwave patterns simultaneously with fMRI. What we broadly see in terms of results of what's happening in the brain is that we see these higher level regions, these evolved brain uh, networks and hubs that organize brain activity, they become more integrated with the rest of the brain. Uh, we see that there is a disconnection between low-level or sensory regions and how they operate. And effectively, we see hyperconnected brain, but specifically, we see the hyperconnectivity emerging in networks such as the default mode network and the frontal parietal networks. These networks are specifically linked on the one end, DMN, the default mode network, is connected to how we construct a sense of self, a sense of identity. It is activated when we reflect upon our past, projects ourselves in the future, uh, and when we think about relationships. So it's a very, you know, scientists many times think that this is a network that is related to the sense of self. And the frontal parietal network is engaged in how we uh, somehow make complex decisions when we navigate a complex social world and culture that we navigate. And we see that these networks are dysregulated during the DMT experience. And indeed, we see that also when we see how these brainwave patterns are related to this hyperconnectivity. All of these results tell us that DMT is somehow dysregulating the evolved part of the human brain. And the evolved part of the human brain is also the one that is linked to how we structure the rest of brain activity. So this is what, uh, when we look at the latest research around brain connectivity and how brain topology is organized in the human brain, how that relates to evolution, we see that these higher level networks are having an organizing, a hierarchical effect in how the brain operates in general. They, these networks sit atop of the hierarchy in the human brain, and the 5-HT2A receptor system, which is linked to psychedelic action, is a psychedelic receptor, if you will, is also very much expressed in these high-level evolved brain hubs. Now, when we look at the functional significance of that, what are the things that are related to these evolved brain hubs is that they relate to semantics, language, memory functions, pointing towards the possibility that somehow DMT and psychedelics may facilitate the generation of novel percepts, meaning, and mentalization. Potentially, and this is where I think the clinical part might play some, um, there's inferences that can help the clinical side of things, is that many times we think, for example, that in case of mental illness, what is happening is that participants are, or individuals are somehow having a, a maladaptive story that has become a rigid coping pattern. And we can see that in some brain disorders. And what 
DMT and psychedelics would be doing would be kind of like shuffling the meaning around these stories, engaging these evolved brain systems that allow us to construct stories so that we can have better stories about ourselves. And this is somehow intuitive with, um, if you want to call them healing, healing trips, for example, right? In which these stories, these at times traumatic stories are being renegotiated again, resignified and reframed in a, better, in a better or more adaptive way. And I think these findings are also relevant when it comes to the, to the kind of battle that's going on right now on the discussion of whether or not the experience is necessary for these psychedelic compounds to have a therapeutic effect. On the one hand, there's the idea, the conviction, I think very much based on strong evidence that indeed you do need experiences, mystical type experiences, psychological insight experiences or cathartic experiences for these beneficial outcomes to occur. While the competing view is that all you need is this functional or structural neuroplasticity, changes, lasting changes in the brain in which you could also dispense of the experience. I think uh, we can have a middle way, as in most things that appear to be important in this regard. And one way to look at it, again, is that we see indeed functional changes in, in terms of plasticity of what's happening in the brain. But because these appear to be located in these high-level regions in which we tell stories and make meaning out of the world, they are intimately related to our own experiences and how that meaning is also transformed in a lasting sort of way. So that relates to how we construct a world of experience and how psychedelics can help us inform on that construction of worlds of experience. Let's try to understand now how psychedelics may inform us on the nature of human experience when it comes to the sense of self or the sense of ego. From a neuroscientific perspective, um, we can conceptualize the sense of self as being comprised of these two broad categories. One concerns the narrative sense of self, the sense of self which relates to our past, our identity, our declarative ways of understanding who we are, our biographies, for example. While on the other hand, we have this bodily embodied sense of self, this sense of self that is related to our homeostatic principles of self-regulation. When it comes to the body, it relates to our sense of interoception or the perception of our own interoceptive organs. And it's somehow happening at a more implicit level. It's not something that we can reflectively access with that much ease when we compare it with a narrative sense of self. It is something that is there moment to moment in a recursive process of being built and rebuilt, this sense of our bodily self, related to our body, our location in space, and so on. Psychedelics may disrupt both of these, or dysregulate both of these aspects of the sense of self, and therefore help us understand how we build our sense of identity or ego during the psychedelic experience, outside of the psychedelic experience, and how it's dysregulated within the psychedelic experience. So for example, research with LSD, uh, has provided evidence that a reduced connectivity from the parahippocampal structures related to memory, for example, and aspects related to the biographical sense are linked to scores of ego dissolution. Right? 
the idea here is that the narrative sense of self is being disrupted and is linked to this parahippocampal structures, the hippocampus um, related to memory, autobiographical aspects of the experience. Other research has shown, for example, that other areas on the cortex relate to this experience of ego dissolution, showing the angular or the insula, which are more related possibly, again, to a sense of self that is more embodied. Right? The insula is this network or the structure in the brain that is related to the perception of our internal bodily organs and how they integrate with ectoreceptive information, so uh, perception of the external world. So we were curious about, more specifically, I think a more understudied aspect of the sense of self, which is precisely this sense of interoception. Our phenomenological analysis of the DMT experience, for example, uh, shows that around the second minute of that DMT experience, people feel very strongly disembodied. While the experience starts with a strong rush in the first minute in IV DMT, at the second minute, people feel that they're no longer in their bodies and they have a world of experience that is being constructed here, signified by that visual sort of line that is evolving over time. So we were interested in how this sense of disembodiment might be linked to our bodily self, to a disruption of our interceptive mechanisms, maybe a dysregulation about how we process our sense of homeostatic regulation. So is the DMT experience of disembodiment associated with reduced interoceptive awareness? And can this be the basis of the experience of ego dissolution to a certain extent? So to do that, we use EEG. And one of the things, very cool things that you can do with the EEG is to try to examine the interaction between the heart and the brain. This is called the heart evoked potential. On every heartbeat, the idea is that on every heartbeat, you would have a cortical signal somehow related to the somewhat implicit processing of our own heartbeat, our feeling of being alive moment to moment. And we see that with DMT, there is a strong disruption of this process of interoceptive perception. So this is the placebo state, and this is the signal, sorry, this is the, the placebo is the black here, you would expect a strong signal there, this is the signal for the interoception, and in the DMT state we see that being significantly blunted. So reduction of this interoceptive accuracy, and then we see that these disruptions are linked very much, sorry, these are very much linked to scores of ego dissolution. So we provide some evidence, again, via the use of psychedelics, that we can disrupt both narrative aspects of the sense of self and our sense of identity, but also sense aspects related to the bodily self or interoception. Uh, and this leads us to our, our third component of possibly how psychedelics may help us understand the nature of human experience. Uh, this aspect relates to the embedded character of mind. Um, the idea that our human experience is not just conditioned by our mental experiential processes, but also related to our body and our context, our social worlds. The idea is that mind and experience are situated in specific contexts. And 
when we look again at this idea of how psychedelics are being used in clinical settings uh, and the current neuroscientific understanding, I'd say, the best inferences that we can gather from the evidence is that we have these functional neuroplasticity mechanisms happening related to this 5-HT2A agonism, but the direction of that plasticity and the outcome of it will depend very much on the context. This is the intuition of set and setting that has been around, a very useful meme that has been around in the wider psychedelic community, not just in research, for a long, long time. And more and more research is pointing towards the importance of set and setting, the expectations, the intentions of the patient or the individual, their state of mind, underlying uh, conditions and so on, how they influence the process, as well as, of course, the setting, not just the physical setting, but also the relational setting in which that therapeutic experience occurs and may have a healing potential. So to understand this idea with a very simple illustration, for example, we have a depressed organism, depressed brain, if you will, if you want to take the reductionistic approach, um, for example, governed by rumination, a classic symptom in which there is rigidity, there is a difficulty of uh, having larger degrees of freedom when it comes to human experience. There's looping thought patterns that occur over and over again. What psychedelics do is they would dysregulate, they would introduce some form of chaos or plasticity into that rigidity, flexibility, and that flexibility that may lead into various different outcomes. And it's this supportive context, a therapeutic context, framing in different moments in time, not just in the acute session, that essentially shapes that flexibility. So after the trip and after maybe periods of integration, you would have a healthier organism, a healthier state, right? In which essentially the organism, the person, is able now to have a wider range of flexibility and degrees of freedom when it comes to their human experience. Again, hinting towards this notion that psychedelics are not necessarily this form of magic automatic pill, but requires a form of practice to potentiate this window of opportunity or flexibility to occur. We see in our research with metaphysical beliefs and how these single psychedelic experiences can change your worldviews, in our research, we found that indeed context played a very important role in changing those belief systems. Right? So while the psychedelic experience many times has this feeling of providing a convincing, unmediated form of truth, we find in our research that actually context plays a role of mediation that is important. And, uh, and this is a bit more speculative, but the leading theories when it comes to the action of psychedelics, one of the leading theories in my opinion is this idea of relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. The idea would be is that under the view of the predictive brain, our experience of the world and our experience of ourselves, and also that relates of course to mental illness, is related to somehow the models, the stories that we generate about the world and about ourselves. These are predictive models that are being updated moment to moment. What psychedelics would do is that they would relax these high-level beliefs or these priors. Right? They would in some way reduce 
the complexity of the models that govern brain activity, right? And maybe models that govern mental activity as well. This is very similar to what has been proposed in terms of immersive states of meditation, such as non-dual meditation or deconstructive meditation, in which individuals have an experience that they are somehow simplifying the narratives that govern their experience. They're able to perceive the world closer to the input to a certain extent. So if we are somehow reducing the complexity of human experience, for example, uh, could it be that psychedelics inform something fundamental about that human experience? And that is what um, I think is kind of intuitive in a way from the idea of the geometries and fractals that people are perceiving under the psychedelic state. Now, we don't have direct evidence yet on how these geometries and fractals are, are generated. This has been pioneered by the very good phenomenological work by Henrik Kluver over 100 years ago. So while we don't know the neural mechanisms, why we see this happening at a transcultural level and in different periods in time, the idea that people see fractals and geometries, the best of our guesses is that they somehow relate to a more naive perception, even, of experience. We are somehow accessing the structure of the visual cortex. And if you want to put it in maybe more even esoteric terms, it's somehow that we are seeing into the insides of our brain within that experience. Now, we need evidence to understand this process better, but it appears to indicate to a certain extent that by having a world of experience that is filled by geometries, we are somehow perceiving nature, for example, in a more fundamental sort of way. And this might be related why, to the understanding of why nature connectedness may be increasing following the use of psychedelic substances or, of course, during the psychedelic experience. The natural world is filled with fractals and geometrical patterns. And there may be something about that perceptual style or that cognitive style that happens in the psychedelic experience that is related to this experience of nature connectedness. The idea that somehow we are accessing the interdependent or embedded quality that life has within these larger systems. And we are now doing some work with 5-methoxy-DMT into that sort of notion because while the DMT experience is one that is governed by phenomenological information, specifically loads of visual experiences, the experiences of 5-MeO-DMT at high doses is one in which there are almost no contents of experience. People refer to this as a form of a whiteout. And the underlying speculation or hypothesis here is that in this whiteout, we have a conscious experience without any contents. We have some form of, form of fundamental access to consciousness. And uh, the final aspect of this talk is this notion that I'd like to put forward, which is, again, very intuitive to many, many practitioners, is that for us to better understand the nature of human experience, be that at the individual level or at the level of research, there is a central importance of practice or experiential expertise. Right? This is intuitive in the indigenous and mestizo uses of psychedelics, 
for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years, in which these practices around the use of these compounds have been perfected over generations. It does not mean that it's always, let's say, from a functional perspective, a perfect use, but there's certainly expertise around the use of the compounds for different specified outcomes that that specific culture or population deems important. Right? This is the idea that lineages of psychedelic practice are developed over these generations. And I think that this idea of uh, some form of skillful praxis when it comes to psychedelics or experiential expertise is particularly relevant as these psychedelic compounds appear to induce a sense of noetic, uh, a noetic quality is attached to them. The idea that direct knowledge is somehow achieved and imparted during this psychedelic experience. Uh, so William James speaks about uh, spiritual religious states as, although these states are states of feeling, mystical states seems to those who experience them to also be states of knowledge. They are states of insight into depths of truth unplumbed by the discourse intellect. They are illuminations, revelations full of significance and importance. And all inarticulate though they remain, and as a rule, they carry with them a curious sense of authority for aftertime. This is, uh, we argue on a specific paper, a form of a double-edged sword, this noetic quality. While it may provide certain benefits when it comes to well-being and mental health, the idea of psychological insights being helpful in the process of psychedelic therapy, they may also provide erroneous insights. They can provide noisy information. It's a realm of intuition that is many times problematic. Right? Uh, so for example, in our research with metaphysical beliefs, assuming that these changes in metaphysical beliefs after psychedelic experiences arise following experiences of insights, although these changes in beliefs are helpful in terms of well-being, we also see spiritual bypassing being increased uh, following these or linked to these changes in metaphysical beliefs. The idea of spiritual bypassing is that it's a form of psychological dissociation in which the idea of spirituality and spiritual practices become overvalued against our day-to-day -day, um, needs when it comes to psychological needs, such as relationship issues, autobiographical issues, and so on. So this refers to the idea of a double-edged sword. Uh, philosopher Chris Leatherby who was a collaborator in this metaphysical beliefs project, I think articulates also the risk, the epistemic risks associated to the psychedelic experience. Again, hinting towards this idea of somehow direct and unmediated knowledge arising in the form of these insights that might lead to knowledge that is not necessarily true. So we developed this model along with Rosalind Watts and David Dupuy uh, so clinical psychologist and anthropologist. It was an interdisciplinary approach to try to understand these issues of insights and the central importance that practice has to mediate those insights in the best way possible. So we call this approach psychedelic apprenticeship. And in that approach, the essential idea is that introspection is difficult. It demands an apprenticeship, a progressive development of genuine expertise. And the greatest difficulty lies in the fact that this technicality is masked, that it can be passed unnoticed to the, uh, due to the apparent ease about our states of mind, our thought process, our emotions. So although we have an apparent easy access to our experience, 
in reality, true introspection when it comes to, for example, validating the kind of answers that people have in the process of psychedelic therapy is actually very hard. And it requires a relational component and a skillful expertise component. And we have some preliminary research on this, some preliminary data in which we evaluated, for example, the practitioners that are now being trained in psychedelic therapy. This is happening at the Synthesis Institute in which we evaluate them right before they have their own experiences as part of the training as well as after the experience as part of the training. And we have some quotes hinting towards the importance of personal experience or if you will, experiential, the development of experiential expertise when it comes to psychedelic practice, if they're its own practice or if it's relational to a patient, in both cases, we, the data appears to show that it matters. And as part of this uh, idea of apprenticeship as well, we are now conducting studies in how we can modify the administration of these compounds, specifically DMT, to extend that experience over time so that we can also introduce now uh, technology into how this experience can be modified according to, for example, the needs of the patients or the need of research if we're interested in stuff like consciousness research. And in these preliminary findings, we find that we are able indeed to extend that DMT experience and different facets of that experience, such as the immersive quality that it has and even the possibility to induce these entity encounters, providing opportunities for us in the research to better understand how these processes unfold and how they can maybe be used within therapeutic settings. And to end, uh, just this idea uh, that I've been developing that psychedelics, when it comes to insights uh, or knowledge about consciousness, even if it's the individual mind, uh, or things related to effect, emotion, and biography that are related to mental health, or even at context of research and we're trying to understand the mind from a larger perspective, we can think of the psychedelic experience along this continuum of immersion or deconstruction. Uh, the idea is that one er at one end of that experience, for example, at a high-dose DMT experience, the experience would be characterized by this form of subjective realism. Right? The user feels absorbed into the experience, takes the experience as face value as a form of truth. Uh, under a psychotomimetic model, we could call this as a form of acute delusion, uh, or in the long term, as forms of spiritual bypassing, in the which there is no doubt around how what was lived through was actually a metaphysical truth, for example. But it can also be useful in certain therapeutic moments, when we think about experiences of insight that might be helpful when it comes to processing traumatic memories, for example. I lived through that experience, I owned that experience, that is a true experience that I had. And on the other end of the spectrum, psychedelic states can be characterized as a form of a deconstruction of the experience, or a form of cognitive diffusion, for example, in which we are able to step back from experience and look at how human experience is actually constructed. It's a construction, very much related, again, to contemplative and meditation practices of deconstruction and non-dual states. We can think about, broadly speaking, moments of psychedelic integration as part of this deconstruction of that experience, 
we can think about phenomenological methods in research as forms of deconstruction of that experience. And we can even consider certain aspects of the ego dissolution experience as a form in which in research we can deconstruct to better understand the sense of self. And the idea would be that this idea of immersion or deconstruction is fundamentally being balanced by skillful psychedelic know-how or skillful psychedelic practice in research environments, in clinical environments, and possibly in traditional environments where many of these things are very much intuitive already. And uh, that's all for me. Thank you very much for uh, your attention. Please. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. Uh, we can take some questions. Please do use the microphone so that the questions make it into our recordings. <clears throat> so thank you so much for your very insightful talk. Um, I have a question concerning the, you spoke about um, that the psychedelic experience seems to simplify the human experience. And I thought it's very, this, I found this very interesting concerning also the ineffability of the experience. And I always find it hard to, how to, to rationally talk about this experience because, yeah, because of the ineffability. So my question is, how can you, or how do you think, can you distinguish between the kind of rational metaphysical beliefs and the more like the spiritual and religious beliefs. Yes. Yeah. Um, thank you for your question. How you can distinguish them at a at an experiential level? Maybe well, more on I a scientific level. At a, well, it's um, it's intriguing. I I think that the my current intuition is that there's something about the psychedelic experience per se that it's almost as a um, you know, in, in, in phenomenology, you talk about a form of reduction uh, or, or you, you bracket the human experience and therefore you suspend your habitual judgments about, you know, not just your experience, but also about reality. So I think that there's an inherent aspect to the psychedelic experience because of this sheer intensity um, that leads to forms of suspension of the judgment that then leads to maybe these changes in metaphysical beliefs. Now, when it comes to the idea of spirituality, I think this, the term is a bit more fuzzy. Um, is a, it, it's defined in different ways according to how you look at it. And also at a transcultural level, I don't know if it holds that well, right? I don't know if, for example, um, in, different, in some indigenous perspective, you would hear about necessarily a component purely of spirituality as we would understand it in the same way. But the way that I understand it is that the idea of spirituality is more effectively Latin. It has an effective emotional component linked to it. And this is measured in you know, questionnaires such as the mystical experience questionnaire where there's a component which is called the blissful state component, right? Or the oceanic boundlessness that has also positive effect and positive mood as one of the ways in which this uh, mystical type experience is measured. The idea of metaphysical experiences or metaphysical beliefs are more cognitive uh, as an experience. They have more of that cognitive component. Although it's Im always important to 
I think, understand that it's very hard to find these elements completely isolated. Um, but I think that we can tease them apart to a certain extent. Um, hi. hi. Over here, other side of the room. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, do you think there is any chance to deconstruct the idea of the mystical experience further to have a better understanding of what really is going on? I mean, I understand the ineffability is quite a problem there, but do you think there is an option and to link that even more comprehensively to what is going on in the brain maybe? Yeah, um, that's an excellent question and it's, it's kind of what we're chasing uh, at the DMT group is try to understand uh, how these, um, you know, in these mystical type experiences, I think 5-MeO-DMT is, is a substance that is very ideal into this. Um, there are, uh, I tend to resonate a lot with some consciousness theories that say that at the fundamental level of conscious experience, what we have is a form of core effect. Emotion is at the root of our conscious experience. Um, and my intuition right now, just, just an intuition, is that uh, in the 5-MeO-DMT experience, we get to possibly experience that at a more direct level, the intuition of a core affect. Um, and this is why possibly uh, deconstructing uh, the psychedelic experience um, to a more fundamental aspect might also feel good and might speak about possibly an intrinsic mechanism that psychedelics have for mental health as well, uh, you know, regardless of context, which is also an interesting idea. But I think these are empirical questions, and this is what we're trying to understand. And yes, my conviction is that with proper phenomenological methods, although that experience is ineffable, we can help people navigate that experience and their communication of that experience. Uh, in the field of phenomenology, all experience is fundamentally ineffable. And what we do throughout life, and especially in cultural life, is find a consensus around how to name things that are fundamentally ineffable. And I think that process can be also replicated to a certain extent with the use of skillful phenomenological practice uh, in the form of microphenomenology interviewing, for example. Uh, hi. Hi. Over here. Hey. All right, thank you very much for your fascinating talk. Um, I would uh, very much appreciate your response to what I, uh, a remark I have concerning perhaps a, a methodological tension. Um, so you, you emphasized the, the classic meme that, that experiences, psychedelic experiences are mediated by set and setting. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, we have your general question, can psychedelic experiences in general, what can they teach us about human consciousness in general? but you're extrapolating findings from very specific sets and settings. Settings, you know, controlled experimental or clinical settings, yeah. and particular sets, namely, um, you know, patients uh, in the psychotherapeutic settings as well, yes. or at least individuals in the controlled settings. So how, how does one make this, this leap from extrapolating from specific set and settings to general claims about what the psychedelic experience is like, or what it can tell us about human consciousness in general if those experiences are supposed to be so mediated by sets and setting? Yeah, um, uh, thanks for the question. I think it's, uh, I, I stress very much the importance of interdisciplinary collaboration uh, to try to understand that better. Uh, to try to understand, for example, if inferences that we make 
in this context can be applicable maybe at so-called recreational context outside of these institutionalized environments, but also at, you know, in different cultures and, and different populations. Um, I'd also, I'd also like to remind that although it's, there's an element of mediation, I don't think it's determined by set and setting the experience. I do not take a full constructivist approach on uh, my understanding of the psychedelic experience. I think that although many times the experience has components of which is unpredictable, we have learned a lot uh, when it comes to how pharmacology affects the intensity and the character of that experience. I'll give you one example that's very simple geometries, like the content, the phenomenological content of geometries and fractals with psychedelics is something that you see transculturally, for example. Um, so I think that, that there are determinants of the psychedelic experience, uh, and we can extrapolate some of those determinants in this environment, but we cannot extrapolate all of the determinants within this environment, I would argue. So that's one of the things. And then there's more the epistemological issue around how you interpret those findings in different cultures and populations. I think that that's a step away from uh, my specific expertise. But I think interdisciplinary research helps in that regard. Hi. Um, first, a small remark. I was wondering if you were familiar with Graham Hancock's work and also if it's still up to date. But um, you were mentioning that it might be too interesting to you or others that um, DMT goes back uh, more than 4,200 years. And Graham Hancock links um, geometric um, symbols often experienced on DMT visions with cave paintings, some of the oldest cave paintings of mankind, which would mean it would go back more than 13,000 years, the human usage of DMT. And then to my question, which adds on smoothly to the previous one. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we talk a lot about set and setting and the influence on, on trips. So I was wondering, you, you showed some of the fMRI research you did, and um, yeah, I can barely imagine a less neutral context than the fMRI scanner. So yeah. I was wondering, especially with DMT trips, um, there's, for example, this theme of DMT entities uh, probing, like doing experiments on, um, on the trip, tripping person. If you think or analyze if there's some systematic influence of, for example, the fMRI scanner, on yeah. these types of trips, especially the entities. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so to the first question, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know his work. Um, yeah, he's a he's a nice person. I've, I've known him, but I haven't read his work. Um, the evidence of four thousand years comes from the use of anaenantera seeds in the form of um, in like um, intranasal uh, forms of DMT administration. Uh, and it's uh, relatively hard evidence from an archaeological perspective. So they found the bones in which they find the remnants of anaenantera seeds. Now, whether or not the component that is actually causing those effects in consciousness in anaenantera is related to DMT or 5-MeO-DMT is fairly unclear still, I think, to my, to my knowledge. I consider the idea of guiding our understanding by paintings of geometries and so on to be fairly... Um, I think we need stronger evidence uh, when it comes to saying, you know, that this substance has been used for X amount of years. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's hard for us to find remnants of conserved pipes uh, and stuff like that um, because of that purpose. But I think direct evidence is stronger in that regard. So that's what I would say with regards to that. Uh, with regards to the entities and experiments and so on, 
Um, so we find that people experience these beings around half of the, in half of the cases in our experience, if, if there's a definite answer. Not kind of like, I kind of like had a presence, but a, a, a more definite sense of a presence. Um, and what, you know, the, the meme of that they're experimenting on individuals, we didn't see that in our research. Um, and I know that was more present in Strassman research, and um, it could have been because of the way that they measure things in that context. It could have been that it was very much out of the blue, and therefore that idea of experimentation with DMT was so novel that you know people were maybe able to take that meme in a stronger sort of in our research. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.